This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Radical bathroom policy on the weeds. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias uh, here in Washington with uh, Sarah Cliff. And uh, joining us from Brooklyn, New York is uh, Ezra Klein, who you may know from such podcasts as The Ezra Klein Show. Ooh, that was really smooth, Matt. Yeah. Yeah, we're teasing. We're in show. I see how you did that. <laughs> but this show is better. Um, because this show is better. I'm because, not arguing that Because point. there's more of us. Right. You know, and I think I think first we wanted to, to return to a, a timeless subject, really, of Obamacare. Indeed. Some of the latest. A story that What's never Obamacare? stops. There's a, there's a Vox card stack on that, Ezra. It answers that exact question. <laughs> what is Obamacare? There is, actually. There is. Yeah, so it's a good card stack. It is. And, and what is Obamacare in general is a great question to talk about right now because there is a lot of debate about what it is going to look like this coming year. So we are currently entering the fourth year of the Affordable Care Act's insurance expansion. And there is, you know, someone who's been covering this since Congress passed it, this year feels especially noted in kind of the amount of worry about what's happening in the marketplaces. There's always some kind of level of chatter. Is it going to implode? It hasn't imploded yet. I don't think that's going to happen this year. But there's a notable uptick in questions about the viability of these marketplaces that Obamacare set up. And I think it centers on two things that we'll kind of just dive into. One is, do insurers want this? Do insurance companies want to sell on these marketplaces? And we saw United Healthcare, the largest health insurance company in um, the country, pull out of the marketplaces, basically saying, we've lost too much money. We can't keep doing this. This is bad business for us. We are out. There are some other carriers that have come in. They've gotten a little bit less attention. But in general, you're, you're kind of seeing some insurance companies after three years of experience say, this is not for us. So that's one thing you have. You have kind of this consolidation of marketplaces. You know, the last time I counted, four states are down to just one carrier for next year. And then you also have something happening with premiums that could be quite important, where most smart people I talk to are expecting premiums are going to go up in 2017 more than they have in the past three years, that there'd been a lot of chicken little premiums are going to explode. It never happened. Usually they'd go up like four to six percent. This year, kind of the you know smart health wonks who follow this, they're expecting double-digit increases. And they say it's a result of the fact insurance companies now have data on the people they're insuring. They know how sick they are, and they are sicker than expected. Not all having really insane costs, but definitely more expensive than the employer market or than the other markets I, that insurers were used to operating in. Can I ask you a question about that, Sarah? Sure. So there's a, a just like an interesting backstory here. And I always think about it when I hear the argument that what has happened to insurers on the marketplaces is, is that the customers were, were sicker than expected. So you go back a couple of years, you go back to when Obamacare is passing. And, and we have from the Congressional Budget Office and others a number of estimates and projections about how much insurance on these marketplaces would cost. And then Obamacare launches and the insurance is significantly cheaper. So something that I think did not get as much coverage as it should have. We actually commissioned a poll uh, that, that you did mm -hmm. in consult with periandum polling showing that people thought Obamacare is turning out to be more expensive than expected. It was actually a lot cheaper. But now they're having to jack up prices. And so one thing I always wonder about that is whether the customers were actually sicker than expected 
or whether they were much closer to as sick as expected, but that in order to grab market share or for whatever reason, insurers just underpriced early on because the insurer pricing was not what we expected it to be. That was the surprise when Obamacare launched. And now it's going up, I think still not quite to where we expected it would be at this point, but but closer into that range. So I don't know. I don't think there were projections for how much insurance was supposed to cost a few years in. I just remember there being kind of that point projection. But wasn't that how we backed out the subsidies, right? Like because we had an assumption of how much Obamacare would cost based on how much we thought the government would have to subsidize. So I've never seen an estimate that granular, but it's possible it exists. I've seen the kind of like the top line subsidy data, but maybe it exists. I, I don't. I just haven't seen, you know, Congressional Budget Office, which usually does that, putting out the premium estimates ever since that first one. But the, the um, only reason, just yeah. a bit, the only reason I, I think that that's how they did it is that when the CBO later came out and said Obamacare is 110 billion under what we thought it was, which now may change over time too. They said that the reason was one of the big reasons was that the insurers in the marketplaces had come in under their expectations. They had narrower networks. They they sort of explained that like what had happened was that they had thought that the insurers would not hold costs down very effectively, mm-hmm. but in fact they had, and that sure. had brought down subsidies. Right, and it was, I think that, it was a, that's where I'm that's right. where I'm thinking. About it was a mix from. of lower enrollment and that, and I've never seen it kind of broken down. What was responsible for what amount of that? Right. Anyway, yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah, it, it's very unclear what exactly happened to the insurance companies if they legitimately thought like these are the prices we need. We think CBO is wrong. We think, you know, because we'll use narrower networks than they would have assumed because we'll really kind of make these, you know, plans with high deductibles that we can cover our costs for lower price or if they legitimately expected to take a loss and kind of get people to sign up for their plans the first year and kind of try and undercut their competitors and get really big market share. Either way, that strategy seems like, you know, generally, um, it seems like a bit of a backfire possibly, because one thing we've learned about marketplace enrollees is that they're really willing to switch coverage. Most of us kind of just stick with the same insurer every year. And you see this in Medicare Part D a lot, where seniors tend to pick a prescription drug insurance company and they just stick with it for a number of years. The marketplace enrollees aren't like that. We saw 43% switched plans last year. So it suggests this idea of kind of grabbing market share and then raising your prices that business strategy doesn't work on the marketplace. Like people will just go to someone else with lower prices. And that might be one reason why insurance companies are kind of feeling like their plans backfired and are backing out. To me, some of this trouble, trouble in the really trouble on the business side, it kind of raises the conceptual question of like, what is the purpose? of the participation of private health insurance plans in this whole scheme. That one reason Obamacare often seems so so unloved and, and undefended anytime these stories come up is that it really is a like idea that people don't love. You have conservatives who have just always, always, always thought that having the government spend a lot of money on helping poor people buy health insurance is not a great idea. And you've had liberals who have this idea that you know, really, the government should give people health care. And you have this compromise strategy that's embedded in the law where we have a lot of taxation, a lot of regulation, a lot of subsidy, but the participation and heavy reliance on private insurers to do this stuff. And it doesn't it doesn't seem obvious that there is, other than crass politics, that there is something important and useful and good that's happening here. Insurance companies don't really seem to 
be loving the experience that they're having here. It's introducing a lot of kind of hazy uncertainty where every year we have this like, what's this going to cost next year? Because like we don't know and it's being left up to a, a, a dynamic that's out of our control. And I don't feel like we're seeing evidence that something, something like incredible and good is happening as a result. So I think this gets it. A question that's worth talking about as a as a big question, even as opposed to a small Obamacare question, which is what is the point of basing a healthcare system around competition between private insurers? Because going back now, I'd say at least twenty or thirty years, that has for many, not all, uh, but but many healthcare wonks been the holy grail. That's what you had in Clinton's healthcare bill in the early nineteen nineties. It's what you had around Jim Cooper's bill, which was a which was a competitor to that. It's what you had in the Wyden Bennett bill. It's what you have, obviously, in Obamacare. You can go back to sort of thinkers on this, like Alan Entoven and others. And this has been something that has been really thought of as in I think political policy circles as the great alternative to single payer. And back when we worked at the American Prospect, Matt. I started trying to write an article about what are insurers for? What are what are health insurers for? What role do they play? Obviously, in our current system, they act as a middleman and and you give the insurer some money and the insurer gives that money to the provider, but 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 why do you need that? And I mean, you can get into very simplified answers that insurers help you smooth out costs over a lifetime and what and so on, but there's no reason you need a private insurer for that. A single payer insurer can easily help you smooth out a cost over a lifetime. This article then tried to ask this question of like, okay, like what role can they play? What are people hoping is going to happen if you have this kind of competition between insurers? And you would get some answers. I got pointed to a lot of interesting pilot programs or, or smaller experiments that insurers are running, trying to help keep people healthier. There's a lot of talk about structuring payment mechanisms like deductibles and co-pays and other things so that we incentivize the right kind of care and disincentivize the wrong kind of care. But the article never really ran because it turned out to be a really difficult question to answer. And I think you're seeing some of the reasons why here. So at the upshot, Margot Sanger, Katzen, and Reed Abelson had a good discussion about what's going on in the Obamacare insurance markets. And one thing, I forget which of them made this point, but one of them did, was that something that's happening, as Sarah mentioned, originally there was a concern that Obamacare shoppers would actually not be price sensitive. And that's what economists wanted them to be, that they would just sign up with an insurer. But because it's a pain in the ass to change your insurer, because then maybe you need to get a new doctor and other things, that they would just never change insurers ever again. And as such, they would not bring any price discipline into the market. That turned out to not be true. They really do switch and are very price sensitive. But now there's another problem emerging. One is that a lot of insurers just don't want to be in that competitive market. A world where they become a commoditized product with a very slim profit margin It's just not a very exciting world. The other is that as people are switching in and out of insurers very fast, it means that insurers don't have a really strong incentive to invest in their long-term health. Because if you're paying money right now on preventive health care and other things that are going to pay off five years, 10 years down the road, it's very likely that you, the insurer making these upfront investments, are not actually going to be the one to reap the benefits. And so a more competitive insurance market actually reduces the incentives for long-term investments in customer health. And so when you, when you put those things together, you begin to ask yourself, well, why do we want these competitive insurance markets at all? What, what are they getting us, even if they did work perfectly? 
If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. So one thing I think about, you know, and I think a lot of this makes a lot of sense. You do see a lot of people switching and it's really, it's a hard market for insurance companies to navigate. And I think there was this desire, you know, people would price against each other and they would work with these price sensitive shoppers. And instead, some insurance companies have just said, you know, it's not worth it. We're out. And one thing, you know, that helps me keep this in context is remembering the exchanges are really small market compared to the rest of the country. I think there's about 150 million people who get their insurance at work. There's about 13 million who get their insurance in the marketplaces. So that's like, you know, a decent, it's a decent amount of people. And definitely for the people who are relying on the marketplaces, they're quite important. But for an insurance company, you know, figuring out how do we set our strategy, it's possible that the market just isn't big enough to make it worth it, especially if you're someone like United who else has all these massive employer contracts. Why not focus on winning a big business than having to win like all these individual customers again and again and again? One type of insurer I will speak up for on the marketplaces, and this is you know something I wrote about a few weeks ago, is that I think insurers pulling out like United do get a lot of attention, but there are some insurance companies that are succeeding there. And these tend to be plans that have typically worked with a kind of lower income population and plans that have helped states manage their Medicaid contracts. And these plans are, they kind of have a history in Medicaid. The exchanges have opened up this middle income population to them. And they jumped into that as a new business segment and are doing pretty well. There's one that jumps out in particular called Centene that, you know, and I think if you're someone with employer-sponsored insurance, you know, you've heard of United, you think, wow, United's like pulling out. You haven't probably heard of Centene, which kind of works behind the scenes managing um, state Medicaid contracts, but it's actually been doing really well at Obamacare marketplaces and keeps expanding into more and more marketplaces because they feel like they know this population. They can work with people who are kind of churning in and out of Medicaid, whose incomes are fluctuating and moving in and out. They can offer plans to people at different income levels. So I think one of the things you're seeing in the marketplaces is it's not the ideal environment for every insurer, but there are some who are finding success. They just aren't the ones that 
you know, a lot of us with employer-sponsored insurance have ever heard of or, you know, would even think much about. Whereas I think when we hear of an insurance company we've heard of where we might have gotten insurance at some point, it kind of like feels more resonant in a way, like problematic if the insurance company that we know about doesn't want to participate anymore. I mean, that's a great point. And it's true that if you just think about this as a business story, right, in retrospect, it was probably foolish to expect that big existing incumbent insurance companies like United would be the ones who succeed in these marketplaces. Because you see all over the business world that there's a huge difference between companies whose customers are big enterprise buyers and companies whose customers are individual consumers. They're just very different kinds of markets. You use very different sales strategies and you build your whole businesses around them. And you see that when things change, that like Microsoft was this dominant company in a world where they were selling desktop computers to big companies. And then people started doing more and more computing on their smartphones. It's much more personal. It's it's bought by the individual, even though lots of us use a lot of work email and, and do stuff like that. And a, and a different company, uh, Apple, which was more about a customer experience rather than a, a corporate experience, did much, much better there. And that's part of what you see is that United's real core expertise was in putting together an insurance package that would be appealing to institutional health insurance buyers. And then you put them in this different situation and they don't know how to price that in a way that makes sense. They don't know how to market that or to whom or even what their sort of goals are going to be. And it's Not that they couldn't develop the expertise to do it, but because the marketplace market is so much smaller, it's hard for a company to have two cultures in its head at once. Whereas for someone who's been sort of dabbling in the the Medicaid market, which is not that appealing to be able to move like upscale to slightly more affluent customers, you know, really seems like something you kind of want to work at. But you still kind of have this question of like, what is the point, right? So it's like the hope is that through competition, customers will be choosy based on price. So they're going to want to get an insurer who has low premiums. So insurers are going to figure out ways to like keep their own costs down and and things like that. But, you know, as we've discussed uh, on this show and, and we've written about on Vox, I mean, we know as a policy matter how to make payment rates lower. And it's called you pass a law saying the rates have to be lower. That's how Medicare controls costs. That's how all countries on earth control costs. That's how costs. Medicaid controls costs. That's how Medicaid well. controls costs. I mean, it's there's one way that every program that successfully controls costs controls costs. And then this is like cockamamie notion. Every healthcare program. Yeah. You know, like, well, let's do it this totally other complicated bank shot way through like three tricks and consumer switching and, and blah, blah, blah. And and I mean, you can understand the political story of how people came to be thinking along those lines. But each time you have like a little bug in the system, it I think comes back to the fact that it's just not like a great idea. It's an idea whose motives are political rather than policy in nature. They're trying to take the political imperative to like work with the institutional players that we have and make lemonade out of it. But it's it's really hard. It's like not not really the right way to do it. So I think there are two things there that I want to pick up on that I think are really interesting. So first, I, I really want to emphasize something you just said, because I think it speaks to the calculus and, and where it 
goes wrong in this question of what are, are the insurers meant to do. There are definitely ways that insurers keep premiums down. They are much more innovative than Medicare is or than Medicaid is or than VA healthcare is in terms of how do you structure benefit design. They have narrow networks and they try to do interesting things with their networks. They create all kinds of weird structures around premiums and deductibles and co-pays and, and, and other things. And some of that stuff ultimately turns out to be effective. The problem is it just ends up being small drops in the bucket compared to raw price controls that are set by the government. And so in other areas, you worry so much about the innovation that you don't want those raw price controls set up by the government, even if those raw price controls would make things like whatever, cookies cheaper. You don't want to staunch cookie innovation. But the thing here is that there's just not a lot of evidence that that does staunch innovation here. I mean, we, we see a lot of innovation in other countries. We, we, we see it in our country. You can get into debates about who about there being free riding, but the core point is, to some degree, the innovation actually is not coming from the insurers here. The innovation we care about in healthcare is not in benefit design. It's in actual medical technology. A lot of that innovation is publicly funded. A lot of that innovation is still driven by things like Medicare. So it, it just is not as slammed up in cases you might imagine that, that going to this kind of a system would reduce innovation. I do take the innovation question seriously, and I think you'd want to think very hard about that if you went to something like single payer. But, but I, I think that's one reason that this ends up being a pretty different market. So then you're asking yourself, what kind of innovation are the insurers on their own providing that is a real benefit versus the lower costs of, of price controls? And the answer is it's very fucking hard to come up with it. Now, one thing that speaks to your point about political logic, Matt, is that it's also a bit of a misnomer to say that the only two choices here are private insurer competition that's really catch as catch can and single payer healthcare in the style of Canada. Most of our peer countries actually do not exist on one of those poles. They tend to have more insurance choices. They're just, those insurance choices are working, whether they're private or they're sort of semi-private nonprofits. Those insurance prices are working off of payment rates set by the government. This is something, I don't know if we've actually done a whole episode on this on the weeds, but it's definitely come up before called all-payer rate setting. And you can definitely imagine a world where you have Medicare and private insurers and Medicaid and VA healthcare and, and all of our other systems, the Indian Health Service, banding together. And either the government is setting rates or these insurers are jointly negotiating rates with hospitals and drug companies and so forth. And so they bring down payment prices very, very sharply, but they all sort of just exist separately. What we have now is that Medicare negotiates very low prices, Medicaid negotiates even lower prices than that, and insurers end up paying, private insurers end up paying much higher prices. And so one question here, the one I think we're asking is, what is the point of having these sort of weird competitive insurance markets? But another version of the question, which does not have to do with whether or not we have insurers, but in some ways strikes the question of prices more directly, is why don't we just have, if we like insurers so much, why don't we just have all-payer rate setting? Well, we do have all-payer rate setting in one state, in Maryland. Well, um, next why, door. why don't you tell me more, Sarah? <laughs> and, one of, so, and the late-lamented Martin O'Malley presidential campaign tried, indeed, to, tried to put this forward. Yes. It, did, it did not remember, catch the public's remember imagination. Remember when Martin O'Malley was running for president? That was like eons ago. That's great. So we do have all-payer rate setting for um, hospitals in Maryland. And we used to have all-payer rate setting in a lot of states, but um, I think it was the 1980s or so, you saw a wave of these pass, and then one by one, they kind of all got repeated 
repealed except for Maryland. And so what Maryland does or has done for at least 25 years now is they have set the rates for hospital procedures in the state. So Medicare, private insurance, Medicaid, they all pay the same thing for a knee replacement or an appendectomy. And for a while, the system, you know, it was working kind of as Ezra described. Maryland had much lower healthcare cost growth than the rest of the nation. One problem they ran into, and I actually, I don't know how this compares internationally, but one problem at least they ran into in Maryland is that when your prices are constrained, you can only earn so much off of each knee replacement. The way you make money is doing lots of knee replacements. So they started upping their volume a few years ago, and all of a sudden you saw Maryland costs rising faster than the rest of the country after all this slow growth. So they've had to rework their all-payer rate setting a little bit. There was, I remember a very, very complex Medicare waiver that I wrote about at the Washington Post with my colleague, Lena Sun, and I remember the two of us going a little nuts trying to understand the new agreement, but it involved using kind of global budgets for each hospital. So setting a cap for how much a hospital could spend to kind of try and push back at that volume-based incentive that had been put in place. So, you know, I generally am someone who I, who thinks all-payer rate setting makes a lot of sense. But, you know, it's also not a panacea, I would say, as, you know, nothing is in healthcare or policy. You, you run into, you know, obstacles of volume going up. And I don't actually know, this would be something I'd be interested to research and discuss in the future, how other countries deal with that. It might be a kind of constraint on physician supply. So in Canada, for example, there are longer wait times for doctors. And that's one way that they might, you know, push back against this volume going up as a way to make more money. But it is something that's been done in the United States. Other other states have not had the appetite. Other states have repealed these systems after putting them in place, suggesting, like Matt said, this kind of politics-based framework against kind of keeping this price competition alive and well in healthcare. To me, I mean, an advantage of, of an all-payer rate-setting system, and, and the reason that I think this is what a lot of countries do rather than having a single-payer system, is that in that kind of universe, the insurance companies, as a middleman layer, are providing a clear function, which is that you are having multiple, in effect, customer service options, mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean, I think right. a totally valid thing to worry about whenever you talk about there being a unitary government provider of any kind of service is that the customer service tends to be bad. There isn't good incentive in government agencies to, like, be friendly and helpful on the phone when you call up and you don't know what's going on. And if you say, okay, well, we're going to have these, like, layers of men who can capture you, they have a real economic incentive to like make their website be good or, you know, whatever else exists in the modern technology. So you like want to interface with them. And that seems to me like a good reason to want private sector involvement in things. The private sector is good at customer service. The government is bad at it. What's weird about the Affordable Care Act is trying to rely on middleman competition as a cost control strategy in an area where there's a proven alternative model, because it's a two-sided market, the, the insurance market, right? The insurers, on the one hand, they're competing for customers to sign up and buy the insurance, but they're also competing for providers to be in their network. And so, I mean, we, we've had articles about this. Lots of people have had articles about this, but it's, it's conceptually difficult to even understand what the optimal number of insurance options is 
in this like price competition universe because if you have 20 insurers, then it turns out that hospitals are going to have a ton of leverage in the negotiation. Prices are going to be really high. If you have only one insurer, then customers have no leverage and prices might also be high. So you're aiming for some kind of sweet spot where there's a number of insurers that's enough for customers to have meaningful choice, but not so many that the providers have, have all the leverage. And that's itself just like a, a weird element. Well, uh, and to layer on top of that, you also are thinking about the consumers. Because this is one thing I've heard talking about Obamacare and Rollies is that it's very challenging having so – like if you have 20 insurance companies to choose from, it's really hard to know like which one, even with kind of the tier levels on the marketplaces. I've actually talked to a few people who called in who, um, you know, on the weeds, we talked about Medicaid. And I asked people to tell me about their Medicaid enrollment experiences. And I had a few people who have enrolled on both Medicaid and exchanges. And one of the things they said to me, which I, I hadn't even thought about but makes a ton of sense, is that Medicaid felt so much easier to sign up for because you couldn't screw it up. You just picked the thing you got and you signed up and you got your doctors. Whereas the marketplaces, I think we like to talk about the idea of competition, but it can be really overwhelming to try and like pick the right one and figure out which one you need when there's like 20 different plans in competition when you have really, um, really kind of heavily competitive markets. You have the bargaining power of the market pl- of the insurance companies lowered, and also some of the confusion of the shoppers going up as they're trying to decide between kind of this wealth of plans that that can be very hard to navigate and know kind of how they differ from one another. Yeah, and it's not like you can go to the shop and like try four out and right. see which one you like, right? <laughs> right? You have to read these like weird. It's an odd kind of product. Right. You don't know what their consumer service is going to be like. Like you don't really get to test it out until you've actually purchased it and are like stuck with it. And also it's not fun, right? I mean, you might enjoy shopping, like test driving a bunch of different cars or something like that, even if it's confusing. There's like no way to try out health insurance plans and it's not in any way entertaining or it's not a pleasant experience. So it's good to have exit, right? If you're in a plan and you don't like it, you can leave for another one. But people don't really love logging on and seeing this like two by two matrix of a million different things. The other thing that is worth bringing in this conversation, if just for a moment, is it this speaks to one of the arguments for the public option. And and one reason I think the public option might in democratic politics make a bit of a comeback if the Obamacare insurance markets keep trending in this direction. So the evolution of the public option was that, you know, first it was a bit of a consolation prize around single payer. But the big policy argument, the reason it was a consolation prize for single payer was that the what we used to call the strong version of the public option would use Medicare's pricing. So they would basically ally with Medicare, pay the same prices as Medicare, but operate in these insurance markets competing against private insurers. And, and the idea that was very exciting to progressives was then that public option would absorb more and more and more of, of the markets and eventually just become a, a way single payer grew throughout the country. That strong public option, which would have been a lot cheaper than private insurers because of the, the payment rates, was taken off the table very early. It was clear there wasn't support for it in the Senate. Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, there was a deal between the Obama administration and, and industry kind of saying they probably weren't going to do that or they weren't going to do that. And so that, that died early. Then what was the public option fight through most of Obamacare was this weaker public option, which just acted as an insurer. It had no particular advantage over the private insurers. It couldn't use Medicare payment rates. It just was an insurer run by the government. 
And I was always a supporter of this idea, but also didn't think it would end up doing that much when you looked at the Congressional Budget Office estimated it would actually be a little bit more expensive than private insurance because you'd probably end up getting sicker patients and so on. But the best policy argument for the public option, that, that version of the public option, which was made by people like Len Nichols, who was then at the New America Foundation, was that it would act as a kind of fallback competitor, which would be important in two ways. One is that it would act as a pricing benchmark. So you would just get a sense of what a fair price was on some level because this public option would just not have an incentive to game the market in the same way that you know maybe private insurers would. And then secondarily, in areas where there was not very heavy competition, this public option would always make sure there was at least you know one or two or however many insurers in the markets. And, and to something Sarah said a couple minutes ago, we're now at a point where in four states, we're down to one insurer. And if we did have this public option operating in every state, say what you will about it, it might not be very important in states where the markets are going pretty well, like California, but maybe it'd be very important in a state like Alaska, where the market has gone down to one other insurer. And so I think something you're, you're seeing here is that as much as there was a lot of interest in competition, the public option got killed functionally at the very end of the day by centrist Democrats in the Senate, like Lieberman. And it now means that there are going to be markets potentially where there really isn't any competition. And then the people believed in competition didn't believe in it enough to use a government to guarantee its existence. And and I think that might prove an unwise decision long term. And one of the things that didn't come up, but this you know came up in a conversation I was just having yesterday, was you know there wasn't any idea of like an even weaker public option, like one that like kicks in as the fallback should you end up with a marketplace with no carriers. Right now, I'm doing some reporting on this, and probably this story will be up by the time you listen to this great podcast. Um, there isn't a fallback if nobody wants to sell insurance in a Obamacare marketplace. The government can beg and plead, and they've done this once. When Obamacare was launching, there were parts of Mississippi that literally just no one wanted to sell it. Like, there was just no carrier. And, like, the federal government and the regulators in Mississippi just, like, really went around and finally got one carrier to come in there. So we have these four states right now. I think right now we're Alaska, Alabama, Wyoming, and Kansas that are down to one carrier. And there is no no fallback if, you know, that one carrier says, you know what, this marketplace isn't for me. One of the things well that was supposed to happen and happened in regulation, but from what I can tell is not happening in practice, is there were supposed to be these multi-state plans. There's supposed to be at least two carriers that would sell in every state and they would be private companies, but they would almost act a bit like a public option where they'd be available everywhere in that fallback sense. That regulation was weakened a little bit. And when, you know, they realized they couldn't get any nationwide carriers, they started with these multi-state plans selling in 60 percent in 2014. We're supposed to ramp up 10 percent every year, which would bring us to selling in all states in 2017. As far as I can tell, that's not happening. And again, it kind of goes back to the theme we've been talking about already, is that it's much harder for the Obama administration to rely on a private plan that they don't own to come in as a multi-state plan. They can say it in regulation, but, you know, there's only so much you can do by putting it into regulation. And, you know, how much easier they could do this if they were running the plan themselves. All right. Is it time for a research paper? Absolutely. And it's a but it's a it's a doozy. It's a it's a great one. So th- this was a, a paper I uh, saw and, and wrote about, and it's it's by Rebecca Diamond and Timothy McQuaid from uh, Stanford Business School, and they're looking at a specific program called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which 
basically subsidizes the construction of apartment buildings that um, have below market rate of affordable housing units in them. And they looked at what is the impact of these low-income housing tax credit projects on the immediate vicinity of where they're built because people tend to have a sort of visceral negative reaction to the idea. And they show that when you put them in a income in a neighborhood where the the average income is above $54,000, which was the the median household income at the time the study was done. So neighborhoods that are above average in income and predominantly white in population. If you build one of these low-income tax credit houses, you see property values decline in the immediate environs. They looked at crime. They showed that the crime rate does not increase, but the property values decline anyway uh, because people don't like to live near poor people. But then they look at what happens in low-income neighborhoods, and there they find that it actually reduces the crime rate in the immediate vicinity, and it increases the value of nearby properties. So, you know, that's a sort of an, an interesting finding, and it suggests that – I mean, it suggests a couple different things, but the policy upshot that they come up with is that it's – Maybe not as necessary as some do-gooder types would think to try to force low-income housing development into affluent neighborhoods. There's some evidence that doing that is more beneficial to the people who actually get the houses. But they're saying that by showing that there's benefit to the surrounding neighborhood, if you build it in a poor neighborhood, you can just look at it as a sort of all-in-all kind of good neighborhood regional development strategy. You want to create some additional housing for low-income people. You also presumably want to just improve living conditions in low-income neighborhoods generally. And locating low-income housing tax credit projects in low-income neighborhoods creates sort of positive spillovers on the neighborhood. And even though it's not the greatest possible location for the people receiving the new housing, it's better than not having a house. So why not kind of take it? Another thing you can take off from this that the authors don't really go into is that it's a kind of disturbing conclusion about the real estate market in affluent areas. They're finding that there isn't an increase in crime, but that it does decrease property values. But it doesn't decrease property values in affluent majority-minority neighborhoods, only in affluent majority-white neighborhoods. So the strong suggestion is that there's just a lot of racist people who don't want to have Black and Latino neighbors, they cannot prove that, and so they. And these are serious, uh, you know, business school people, so they don't want to run around flinging accusations. But that seems like the natural way to to interpret this, which you know is a is a sad reflection on. Can I ask a question? I had reading kind of the your write up of this. What are you thinking about the um, kind of mechanism that's happening in low income neighborhoods? Like, why would you see property values increase? Well, I guess I guess the crime reduction might be leading to the property value increase. But like, is it like were these vacant lots before? How do you or they think about how that happens? Yeah, so they seem to suggest that it's really just the benefit of having more people around, that you're you're primarily looking at construction in places where the land acquisition costs are very low, implying, you know, not that you're tearing down structures, but you're either replacing vacant buildings or, or taking over empty lots. You're putting more 
people in place. It's like it's good for business. It's good for for eyes on the street. Some uh, low income housing people from this world got in touch with me, and and they wanted to make the point that the eligibility rules for low-income housing programs are sort of all over the map in terms of like how low-income do you have to be. And for this particular tax credit, it's a relatively lax sort of description of what it means to be low-income. So area median income is often the sort of peg for these things. And so if you look at a rich metro area like Washington, D.C., area median income here, which is considered to include the suburbs, is very high. So then you can look at a place that counts as affordable, meaning that you won't be overburdened by costs if you make 80 or even 60 percent of area median income. A person at 60 percent of AMI in the Washington, D.C. area is probably not below the poverty line, right? So constructing units affordable units in a high poverty neighborhood in the city of Washington, you may actually be increasing just like the average income of the people who are there, even though it also counts as affordable housing under the the program design rules. So the authors of the paper did not really get into that, and therefore I did not get into that in my article. But this was an excellent point that people were raising, and it's actually a lot less counterintuitive if, if you frame it that way, that you're creating housing for people who are poorer than the average person in the metro area, but possibly more affluent right, or like than the I, average person. In New person. York, I had a friend in law school who was using one of these programs because she wasn't making any money. She was in law school. But that doesn't really like align with who you might often think of using these programs. Yeah. I mean, that's a different case yeah. about like, are they even measuring this like correctly. But I mean, I know that with a, a range of different affordable housing programs, this has been a concern around like, how are you defining this and with what level of kind of stringency? And then it depends how it works. I mean, in this case, this is a, a federal tax credit. So you, you're not really depleting a finite resource by using it on people who are not super duper duper poor. And it's probably doing some some help. But the suggestion of that would would just be that it's not as counterintuitive as you might think, that really this works for the kind of obvious reason, that you're taking very poor neighborhoods that are full of vacant lots or derelict buildings, you're creating buildings and you're putting sort of lower middle class people in them and everyone ends up better off. Is there a, and I recognize this would not be in the scope of the paper, but it's something that just given your interest in in housing policy, you might know. Is there a current conventional wisdom of the best practices for building low-income housing such that it is a boon to the nearby community, to development, to values. It's certainly my impression as someone who follows this stuff but is not nearly as deep in it as you are, that there's a view that a lot of the low-income housing built in the mid-20th century was poorly built from this perspective. And it's also my understanding that there's been real changes in how we've thought about constructing low-income housing since then. But if you take this paper really seriously and say, okay, we're going to create national policy on it, and you're going to say, we want to build these homes in a way that is going to maximize their value to the areas they're in, is there a view of how to do that? Do we feel like we know how to do that? Yeah, so that's where this is interesting, right? So the sort of 
old policy coming out of the the 40s and 50s was the federal government will give money, matching funds, whatever, how you do it, to states and city housing departments, and they're going to build houses and operate them. And so like when I grew up, New York City Housing Authority operated these like big buildings and they had their own housing police department. And this is like, quote unquote, the projects, right, is these kind of homes, often high rise, but sort of mid-density based on uh, mid-century modernist uh, architectural concepts, but executed on the cheap because it's cities operating with federal grant money. There's been just a huge turn against that. I mean, nobody builds things like that anymore. And there's a substantial federal program called Hope 6, which provides grants to basically tear these things down and disperse people into lower density, more scattered structures. This is also the, the name of PJ Harvey's new album, The Hope Six Demolition Project. And she has a, a song about Hope Six uh, demolition in, in Washington. Uh, it's quite good, although it offended people in the local area. And so now the like sexy new thing is what's called inclusionary zoning. And so this is a rule that'll say, uh, there's a, a big one of these in New York where you'll say, okay, you can build new buildings under some condition, but some share of the units in the building, 10% or 20%, or there's a proposal in San Francisco to make it 25%, have to be offered at this subsidized rate. And so the the sort of joint philosophy of, of Hope Six teardowns and of inclusionary zoning is that you want to scatter the recipients of the subsidized housing in as many places as you can, right? So the the idea, the sort of optimistic take on an inclusionary zoning policy is you're going to have, you know, new development here and there, everywhere. And literally within the same building, you're going to just have a mix of low-income subsidized people and, and market rate people. Part of the appeal of that is that the subsidy is not on the explicit budget of the government because you're just saying the developer kind of has to has to pay it. But part of the appeal really is this idea of integration, right, that you want to have diversity. Then you wind up having a, a lot of implementation issues with this. So I lived in a, in a condo building that was built under inclusionary zoning rules. And because it was a condo building, the people, the recipients of the, the subsidized units had to buy the units. And so they were priced at a low price because it was subsidized housing under inclusionary zoning rules. But it took forever for anyone to come along who was poor enough to qualify for the house, but in a stable enough financial situation to get a mortgage. Right. So we just kind of had these like vacant units for a long time. Then somebody got them. And I don't want to, you know, point any any fingers or, or name any names. But some people had raised the allegation that at least one of the owners of one of these units was not, in fact, living there and was simply taking advantage of the fact that they owned this discount condo to rent it out to somebody else and make money, which to me is not the worst thing in the world. But it it's challenging, right? If you give somebody like a valuable condo at a Submarket price, it's hard, short of a like totalitarian state, to like force them to live well, in it. And one of the other, you probably know this better than I do, but one of the other things you know, I've read about a little bit with these is you know you add these condos, you add the apartments to the buildings, but the actual integration doesn't always work as planned. I think it was the New York Times reporting, you know, a few years ago about condo, about these buildings having separate entrances, like depending on if you were in the cheap building versus like the more expensive building. I have a cousin who works in, you know, housing law in New York, and she says, you know, she runs into these kind of things all the time where she's getting people into these 
buildings, but they're not – the idea of inclusion is there in in law, but in practice, it's – it's quite different. Yeah, and the, this this building with the so-called poor door became like the big nexus of, of controversy. Although the main issue is not really about a door so much as it's about like building amenities, right? So it's like you might say, well, there's going to be a gym in the condo as, as part of it. But we don't have a federal program to give uh, low-income people discounted access to gyms, right? So it's like, well, can you qualify under the inclusionary zoning rules but cut your costs by denying the low-income residents access to some of the building amenities that might be costly to provide. A, a gym, probably you wouldn't because it's a sort of zero marginal cost thing there. But particularly with a really big project, the incentives to find ways to sort of cut people out get really high and it undermines the social inclusion goals. And then the other thing, obviously, is that as we see in this paper, as I think we just know from from politics, that while kind of... Left-wing people thinking about politics on the internet tend to be like really high on the idea of neighborhood level integration. Like actual homeowners in like the gritty real world of community board meetings sort of tend not to be. So the question is, is if you insist on creating housing units in this highly integrated way, do you actually reduce the number of units that you create? Because you're saying – well, we're going to like stick them into the places where they're most not wanted versus do we go back to the old way, which was build them where the land is cheapest, right? And so this paper is only studying one particular housing program. But to an extent, I think to a large extent, it's providing a, a bolster for some aspects of the old thinking, not for the idea of like city-owned and operated buildings because the government does not have a lot of comparative advantage at, at landlording. As we've said before, it's a, it's a customer service function. But the implication of the paper is that like a poor neighborhood is not such a bad place for low-income housing, that it will be beneficial to the neighborhood that's around there and possibly easier to like uh, your dollars will go further, resistance aside, like land is cheaper. And so that's that's the implication. The, the reason I brought up this question about eligibility, the, the pushback I got is that, you know, people are afraid of drawing an overly broad conclusion from a study of one particular program. But at least I would like to see people look at this with some some other kinds of programs because it it questions the the logic of some of the recent thinking about housing. I think that's I an agree. episode of Yeah, that's a show. That's a show. Yeah, there Boom. we go. Did it. Thank you to all you fine people out in Weedsland for tuning in for another episode of The Weeds, a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to our producer, AC Valdez. We'll see you next week. Thank you.